You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 95, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Professor Gabriela Gomez. Dr. Gomez is a mathematician at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. And along with her colleagues from around the world, have written an incredibly provocative paper dealing with COVID and herd immunity. As you might know, traditionally herd immunity is believed to require 60 to 80% of the population who have some immunity either through vaccination or prior infection to prevent large pandemic epidemic spreads. Every disease has a different threshold, some more, some less, based on its infectivity. And so the thought with COVID, with its r not of 2 to 2.5, that it would require 60 to 80%. Well, Dr. Gomez and her group came to the conclusion that actually it's probably between 10 to 20%. They've based this on data and science that they've accumulated over the years, and they've used this same modeling for a number of years now in modeling other epidemics and breakouts, things like malaria, tuberculosis, and have found that it's actually much more common for the herd immunity to be significantly lower than we originally thought, simply because there's a significant heterogeneity within the, our population. This simply means that we're all different. And whether this difference is due to genetics, hygiene, diet, or something else is hard to say. But the fact of the matter is not everyone is equally susceptible to getting a disease. And once the susceptibility of a population drops beneath a certain point, you've reached herd immunity. This does not mean, of course, that the cases go to zero, but the fact that you don't have these large outbreaks that we're having now. So I think this is going to be the first part of the discussion. I'll have another one in maybe next week or the week after. Uh, we're going to sort of tie all this stuff together. But I th think this is a very positive, hopeful message, and one that I think is being borne out by the current data. Now, as with any model, it's just a model. And so it's entirely possible that this will be found to be inaccurate uh, or that it doesn't play out the way that Dr. Gomez believes. However, she thinks with seeing the data that we've seen so far and her prior experience with other infections, that her model is very robust and will stand the test of time. One can only hope, because her prediction is that this burns itself out very soon, and wouldn't that be great? I would really suggest that if you don't subscribe to the show, make sure you do so. Go back to past episodes, and if you have missed some or would like to catch up on some of the things we discussed, certainly go back and listen to those. I don't think you'd be disappointed. Continue sharing with your friends and family. That's what's helped lend to the success of the show, and our show being invited onto the Doctors Podcast Network, which should launch by the end of this year, but... Certainly a soft launch earlier in the fall. I would also like to highly encourage you to review the paper that Dr. Gomez wrote. Uh, the, they'll be linked at the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 095. That's T-H-E-P-R-A-D-O-C-S dot com. That link, a uh, number of other links to previous episodes on COVID and ways to contact and follow Dr. Gomez will be there as well. And I think these are all important things because if you want to start getting into discussion with other people, if you're some policymaker, if you just want some non-doom and gloom when it comes to COVID, I think this is really a, a great paper to read and review. And it's interesting, I think, to see the science behind it and the mathematics, whether you understand it or not. And I'll admit, I'm not as adept at mathematics as I once once was when I was a, an engineer back way back when in college. Uh, but without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. 
Gabriela Gomez of the University of Strathclyde, professor in mathematics and modeler of epidemics. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Gabriela Gomez, a professor of mathematics and statistics at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland. And we're going to be discussing a paper that she recently wrote um, regarding COVID. So we're back to the COVID subject. So I hope you enjoyed your respite for a few weeks, uh, listeners. But we're back to COVID. And we're going to talk about herd immunity. So Dr. Gomez, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be speaking here. Well, in the magic of the internet and the Zoom and online meetings, you're actually, although you teach in Scotland, you're, as we were talking earlier, you're in Portugal, your home country, and I'm obviously in the United States, and we're somehow magically able to talk instantaneously across the world, which I think has made this pandemic a little bit easier to sort of handle, that we can still be socially active and interacting where we couldn't before. Yeah, I, I feel I'm becoming a lot more agile at these things. And, you know, I can imagine 10 years ago, I, I really hated having a conference call or something like that, but now it's just <laughs> become natural. <laughs> it is funny how this, in fact, I was reading a novel just the other day about, and they were talking, there's a detective trying to solve some crime and he was, he had read that there was some city in Italy he had to find. And so he went to the bookstore and got some maps and kind of had an idea where, what part of the country was in and eventually figured out where the town was. I thought, well, it's funny because now, I mean, that was only 15 years ago. Now you wouldn't even think twice. Within five seconds, you know exactly where the town is. You could find, you know, what restaurants are, what their hours are and everything. It's uh, it, the, the connectivity of the world has changed so dramatically. It's, um, I think that probably ties a little bit into COVID, right? I think sort of what's happened is partly because we are so much more connected than we have been in the past. And we are also uh, very connected without being physically connected, and, and that's that's part that was part of the solution. There was there was a big big component in the solution to handling this pandemic. We could be socially distanced, socially distant, but still be in contact with people, the people we needed to, we wanted to. Right, and so that you know we're again talking beforehand a little bit about your collaboration, uh, your paper. You've collaborated with people from all over the world, something that would not have been easily done um, 25 years ago, but we're able to, to obtain knowledge from all of countries from all over the world as we sort of try and get our handle on what this pandemic is and COVID. So why don't we begin with your paper that you wrote, and it'll be linked in the show notes at theparadox.com. Uh, why don't you talk about what your, I guess, your working hypothesis for herd immunity, because we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, so the way we started uh, tackling this COVID epidemic in terms of analyzing it was, was uh, it, it results from uh, the last 10 years of research uh, in, in, in my group. So about, I, I've worked on epidemic modeling for about 20 years now, but there was a change in the way I approached it 10 years ago. And that's when I realized how important it was to include individual variation in our models. So I just became, whether I studied malaria or tuberculosis or influenza or now COVID, I just first think I, I think is, is, well, I'm going to build this model and where, where, where am I going to put this distribution of individual susceptibility or individual connectivity that uh, became a core component of our, all the models we do. So at, at the beginning, when, when, yeah, when, when, we, when the pandemic started, I was actually moving institutions from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine to the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. So I don't have I don't have a group. I didn't have a group at that time. So I didn't have a team to work with me, and uh, and, and 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 I of course I, I was intrigued by this pandemic. I wanted to analyze it. I wanted to start modeling it, and I got in touch with my former students and former collaborators who are all in, in different parts of the world now, and we started doing this together. We started sort of having our. Uh, uh, meetings over the the, 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 the computer uh, yeah. because we were not physically in the same place, and we we yeah we implemented this model and very quickly we started realizing that the epidemic would be much smaller than the homogeneous models were suggesting at the time if we included individual variation, if we in included uh, a level of individual variation compatible with what we, we had included in diseases we had that we had studied before. Of course, we had not studied COVID before, but we had uh, our estimates of, of uh, individual variation in tuberculosis and malaria, and we in included the same levels of individual variation in 
COVID, assuming that, that was a big assumption, considered a big assumption at the time, considering that the, the humans are as variable in their susceptibility to COVID as they are in their susceptibility to tuberculosis and malaria, then we would get uh, herd immunity thresholds around uh, 10 to 20% rather than six over 60% like the more uh, classical models were suggesting. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the, uh, when the first discussion on COVID came, there is the talk, well, with a fairly infectious agent with coronavirus 19, that you need to get 60 to 80% of the population to have immunity to this to prevent large scale spreading and uh, growth to where you saw in areas like Northern Italy, uh, specifically, or New York City, we've seen it in other countries, any cities in the United States as well, and as other parts of the world. Um, but that's, but your assumption then is a 10 to 20% is, you know, completely different, right? I mean, this is a profoundly different threshold and one that can be met relatively quickly in the sense that, um, you know, if you want to get 60 or 80% of the population to have this, have gotten immunity to it, you're, you're anticipating what happened in New York City to happen, say, four times. And so you'd have four times the deaths and, you know, the sort of the surge on the, the healthcare services. Um, and so the use that mentioned that the, the biggest assumption, and there are a number of assumptions we'll go over through, but the biggest one is that there's individual variation. And this is, I guess, to make it simply for the listeners, this is just the assumption that some people are more likely to get than others uh, when you expo- have the same exposure from the same person, right? I mean, so this is, um, and you will see this yeah. for most disease, like even like a common cold, some people in the family catch it and others don't. And there's no good reason, except that for whatever reason, some people have better immune systems. It's all kind of, we sort of chalk it up to. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and it's actually, uh, we, I think we can understand it mechanistically. Why is it that this individual variation leads to this difference in herd immunity thresholds and in the expected size of epidemics? So if we, if we consider our susceptible, at the beginning, we have a totally susceptible population. Uh, so we, we didn't assume that anyone was not susceptible. Everyone in our model population were susceptible, but some individuals were a lot more susceptible than others. And, and, and we had uh, our model included an abstract distribution of susceptibility that depended on a parameter. So the way the model is formalized is that distrib- this distribution is abstract. It, it, it's characterized by a mean and, and a coefficient of variation. And then we, we, we fit this model to epidemics as they develop, and we estimate, uh, we estimate the typical parameters, the typical, typical epidemiological parameters, like the R0, the, the basic reproduction number, which is, which is the average number of secondary cases attributed to each infected individual. And so, so we estimate R0, but in, in, our model differs from uh, other models that are being developed in that we also estimate the coefficients of individual variation. So it's just like a parameter, another parameter that our model, an extra parameter that our model has that we estimate by fitting the model to epidemics. And, and uh, so if, if we, and, and we see, uh, we can do this exercise, we see that if we simulate our model with coefficient of variation zero, we have a very large epidemic. If we simulate it again with a coefficient of variation equal to one, we have a smaller epidemic. And the larger this coefficient of variation is, the smaller the epidemic happens to be. So, and, and, and why is this? So, if we have a heterogeneous populations, uh, a heterogeneous population, the, indi- the individuals that are infected first, uh, early in the epidemic, are the individuals who are most susceptible or most exposed. So these individuals get infected, they develop some immunity, uh, some total or partial or lifelong or or short-lived, it it doesn't matter, they develop some level of immunity. And in in developing that immunity, they are removed from susceptible pool. So they are no longer available for the virus to infect. So the individuals that remain available to the virus are the individuals that all along had less susceptibility. So the virus, the, the, the virus uh, becomes less able to infect because the individuals that remain susceptible are not as susceptible as the ones that, uh, that were, um, uh, it infected before. And uh, so this decelerates the growth of the epidemics and, uh, and, and makes the herd immunity threshold easier to achieve. Um, so that's the mechanism the, for, for, that's the intuition behind the results that we sure. find. And 
I guess, you know, one of the things when you say the individual variation with susceptibility is not um, necessarily just involved with the individual and sort of their ability to not get infected for whatever reason, but also the fact that they may not be putting themselves at exposure, right? I mean, this part of the individual variation is some people may stay at home more or they may avoid more short social interactions and contact. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it, it can be that as well. We actually formulate two models and because mathematically these two uh, uh, processes are a bit different so so heterogeneity and susceptibility is just it just means what it says so some individuals are more likely than others to to acquire the infection but when we say heterogeneity in exposure the individuals that are more exposed that means that have more contacts with other individuals they are not only more likely to acquire infection but they are also more likely to pass it on to others so mathematically this is a slightly different model but we we, we applied both models and, and the actual we actually developed some hybrid models that combine these two and 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 we, we applied these different models to, to, to the epidemics, to, to the data that is coming from the epidemics as, as, as they unfold. And, and, and we, we, get, uh, we get very similar estimates of the coefficient of the herd immunity threshold. So despite the model differences, um, it seems like the herd immunity threshold is a rather conserved quantity that, that, that you know, different models tell us as long as they have the right amount of variation um, and uh, yeah they, they 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 indicate the same same herd immunity thresholds and the amount of the variation that we in, in, that we put in these models is not is not an assumption we actually it's by fitting the model to the epidemic curves that we estimate the coefficients of variation like we estimate are not and having having the the coefficient of variation and are not there is a simple formula that tells us what is the herd immunity threshold given those estimated parameters so when you're looking at the you looked at a, i think four countries if i recall in the model the England, Belgium, Spain, and Portugal, and and then I assume well, I mean I, the the re, the reaction of the virus has been different in all those countries. I mean I think Belgium is one of the worst hit in the world um, as far as deaths per million or however they're calculating. But uh, so did you find that even even with all the different responses, they're pretty much the same within the same sort of limits of ten to twenty percent and. Yeah, actually, the country where we estimated the herd immunity threshold to be lowest among these four countries was in Portugal. So it's it's about ten, and 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 sometimes a bit less than 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 ten, depending on exactly what model to use. And uh, and and England in England we estimated twenty percent. That was the highest of all the 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 four countries and Belgium and Spain, we estimate something in between. And, and, and actually it's interesting, the, the reason why England seems to have a higher herd immunity threshold than the other, than the other three countries is that it, it you know, our, our estimates say that the coefficient of variation is smaller. So it looks like the, the population in England is less variable than than the populations in in uh, in, in, in south of Europe or, or or in Belgium, which could be something. This could be telling us about something cultural. Maybe I don't know. I haven't really right. uh, didn't really think about it uh, beyond beyond this. But it's quite interesting. Maybe interesting to investigate in the future. So it could be. So you're saying the variability could be a genetic thing, or it could be the fact that it's more densely populated, or that people just behave differently. For instance, we, there was a discussion that maybe Italy was worse because the you know in greeting people you're kissing people as opposed to shaking hands or just waving, and that your ability to you know so that's a cultural difference that may cause the more likely to have you know you need a higher threshold because mm -hmm. of the way people interact yeah. with each other. Yeah, yeah, that may cause a higher or not, but it maybe may also cause higher variation because. Uh, uh, yeah, you kiss and hug more people, but not everybody. It's just right. people you know better. Uh, so, so that creates variation as well. Right. So, doesn't doesn't only create more more uh, more transmission, but more variation as well. And even biological differences, uh, part of it could be genetic, could be genetic differences that make some people more susceptible than others. But it could also be the the history. Uh, 
of uh, their, their life history uh, s somehow, the, their experiences that they live throughout life, which although it may actually become uh, appear like a biological difference, it may be a biological difference that develops uh, because of uh, social and cultural um, differences. Uh, I, I find it quite interesting. I, you know, right now, I've only been uh, using these to make the models more accurate, but it actually makes you think and, 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 uh, and maybe you'll, you'll uh, give rise to other sure. projects. Well, I mean, if you th it's uh, the hardest thing when it comes to epidemiology is controlling for, I mean, well, proving, proving causation is always the hardest thing in these sort of studies, right? And, and when you have something like this, you say, well, there's dietary differences, there's genetic differences, there are, you know, age differences and age of populations in general. Uh, there's the cultural differences as far as, you know, how people move around, the density, you know, what the nutritional, you know, state is of people. And so there's so many different things that could enter into this that it'd be very hard to, I mean, it's, there could be a lot of work that's, <laughs> a lot of papers could be written in the future on this, this subject. Um, you know, one of the things that people talk about with COVID and they think that is a large um, contributor to, these, these especially many epidemics that occur in regions or cities is the notion of the super spreaders and that people who, for whatever reason, they tend to be very efficient at getting other people sick, whether they, whether that's them spewing more virus per breath than the average person or something like that. Does your model take that into account or does it, does it not really make a difference because it just assumes that those people are sort of everywhere equally distributed? I think that's that's maybe captured by uh, by our heterogeneous connectivity model. So in our you know, we, you know, we have one model that is heterogeneity in susceptibility that doesn't have that, but the other model that has heterogeneity in connectivity, the individuals that have a higher degree of contacts, uh, the individuals that have more contacts, they may be super spreaders. They may be, be appear as super spreaders for those kinds of studies. So they. Um, so, um, uh, of course, they could also be super spreaders for different reasons, maybe because they were biologically more infectious. And, uh, 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 but I, I, I think if what I read from groups that studied that in particular by, by, uh, by following contacts and how many people each person infected. So there are studies that are trying to measure that. And they seem to attribute that characteristic of super spreading to having more contacts rather than having more infectiousness. Yeah, but I don't know. So it may be partly included in yeah. our models. Well, and uh, you know, you this sort of, this is something that I've been feeling for a while. And I, I mean, so much you're just operating on hunches, right? And because until we see this all play out, you don't know how it's going to play out, right? We don't. We haven't seen the ending of this of this film, and I certainly felt somewhat comforted in the fact that we've not had large second wave epidemics in areas that have been hit hard initially. I just look at the United States. New York got hit really hard initially, and it has really had almost I don't want to say nothing, but really virtually no problems since that initial big wave hit. And they estimate. 15, 20% of the population has probably been exposed to COVID in that, the city and the, the urban area, at least, a metropolitan area, New York and New Jersey. Um, and then there's a German study, I think, that came out that suggested that there's, that even people who were, who were taking serum from people from five years ago or so, four or five years ago, when exposed to COVID, obviously they'd never seen COVID before because it didn't exist. And yet, even though they're exposed to COVID, they're, 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 their white cells or T cells actually formed an immune response to COVID-19, suggesting there's some cross-reactivity with previous exposure to maybe other coronaviruses or some other virus that may explain why some people seem totally fine when they get this and others get really sick, right? Um, but it also, that would, I guess, lend credence to the fact that there it adds a lot of more individual variability and the, the ability to hit a threshold, uh, the herd immunity threshold, at a much lower number than the suggested, you know, assuming everybody had, you know, this is totally novel and no one had ever, and everyone's equally susceptible. Yeah, that's part uh, exposure to other, to other uh, um, viruses, to other coronaviruses is one, uh, one potential source of this individual, one potential factor for this individual variation that we see. Um, yeah, we talked about genetics, we talked about previous history, that's part of the previous history, you know, being exposed to, to viruses that our immune system may uh, uh, see as similar somehow and cross-react. Um, yeah, uh, but, but I think one, one, one 
I think a very important consequence, I hope, of this, of, of, of coming up with these herd immunity thresholds that are much lower, is that we, we can actually talk about what to do. We can actually have a constructive debate of you know, what's the best way to, uh, uh, to, to, to overcome the, 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 the rest of this pandemic. It's not over yet, but uh, yeah, it may be more than halfway over. And you know, what's the best way to lead things to, to the end in the safest possible way for, for everybody? When we were thinking about the herd immunity threshold of 70%, it was just daunting. It's just that right. we can't do anything. This is so bad. It's just, it's going to last so long. It's going to be so devastating. What can we do? It just, and then it created these polarized views in the, uh, uh, just among people in general, but also in scientific community and, uh, and, uh, and, and that was not very helpful, I, I think. So if, if we think it's 20% in some places, 10 in others, are we there? Maybe not yet, but uh, what's the best way to get there? It, will, it may be soon, it may be by the end of this year in, 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 in many places. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, I hope people appreciate that. I really thought it was, it was a, a, a uh, yeah, I really thought this was going to be very welcome and our, our, our approach and our results and our conclusions were going to be very welcome. Then, I, I don't know, I just, uh, I'm getting very um, sort of refractory reactions, mainly from the scientific community that's been, uh, you know, it's sad to, to, to see because, you know, we just want to be constructive. We want, just want people to get interested and, and, uh, and, and help us. We, we are not going to solve everything by ourselves. Uh, there's lots of complementary studies that can be done that, that, will, uh, that will help to be more conclusive, to establish this causality. Right. Yeah, well, and that's, the, and that's the other half of it, right? I mean, the, one is to say, well, we know we need a 20%, let's say even 25%. The you know to say the high end for maybe some other country you didn't study, but um, you know how do you get there? Uh, what is what do you think the role of vaccination is? Because you know that there there seem to be many, and it I'm don't know what it's like in Portugal, but here in the United States it is so politicized. Um, there are some people who are resting their laurels on vaccination, which we don't know when that'll happen, if it occurs, how effective it will be. What effect does that have on herd immunity? I mean, because in some ways you're going to be immunizing people who. I guess, according to your model, would are not worth demonizing because they would not be susceptible anyway, or, or right? I mean, do you have to immunize a larger portion of people than you would ordinarily? Because I guess then you would have to, people need to get infected. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's also, a, um, yeah, who to immunize is actually a question where that, to answer that question, you also, so it's good to have a, an accurate idea of what the herd immunity threshold is and how far we are from it. If, if we were very far from the herd immunity threshold, and if we recognize that is individual variation in the population, you'd probably want to vaccinate those people that are more susceptible or more likely to get the infection or more exposed, like more likely to get the infection, because that would help you more to reach the herd immunity. And, and if you reach herd immunity, then you protect everybody. Uh, but but if, if herd immunity is lower, and if we are almost there, really the priority must be to vaccinate the, the people who are, who are at higher risk of having the more severe symptoms. Um, uh, although you may want to vaccinate those right. anyway, whether, whether you choose to vaccinate to herd immunity, you may also at, in, at the same time uh, uh, decide to vac vaccinate people at higher risk to develop uh, severe symptoms if they get infected, but it's 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 a different logic, and 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 we can discuss, we can debate because it's something that is manageable. It's in our reach. It's a problem that we can solve. Um, yeah, I, con I confess I was finding it a bit depressing to think that you know we have this massive epidemic, and the only way to get out, to to get out of it is to 
vaccinate uh, almost everybody, to have a vaccine, vaccinate almost everybody, right. but we don't know when the vaccine is going to be here. So uh, what to do? Yeah, right. Well, I don't know. Yeah, we're sort of left <laughs> with uh, no options, right? Except just to hide for one to two to three years, and which is not feasible for most people. I mean, uh, you don't realize how important social interactions are until they're taken away from you. I think, you know, even if I consider myself fairly introverted, and yet it is... Yeah, I found it pretty challenging where I would suddenly I'd linger around at work extra hours because just, you know, it's an opportunity to talk to someone and just visit with someone. And I notice all kinds of people doing this too. And ordinarily we sort of, when we're done with work, we just kind of head home and now everyone's just congregating and hanging out, you know, speaking for a little while. So um, what do you, with the scientific community sort of working things out? And I think, you know, this is something that people don't recognize who don't follow science much. And I admit I'm not, don't follow science a ton, but I do recognize that, it's always evolving. There's always a lot of dispute. And until you, scientific consensus is not reached upon quickly, especially in the midst of the fog of sort of war here, is we don't really know anything about this virus. We're all sort of learning. Do you find that people are, the resistance comes from people, other people who are modeling, or do you think it's people who have, who are committed to a certain path? And that's, that's why they're so hostile to the notion that maybe herd immunity is not million miles away and that we're actually maybe potentially closer than other than what do you what do you think the the resistance and the problems right now are within the scientific community i think for some reason i think it's people connected with public health and uh, in general including including lab based like immunologists or including epidemiologists and including um social sciences people that somehow are connected in with uh, are involved in public health research in in some way and as if they feel they in order to protect people they cannot let them know that herd immunity threshold is almost here because it could that could trigger less careful behaviors and people could expose themselves more if they thought the problem is not as big as they originally thought I think it may actually work the opposite way. I think if you if you if you tell people that you know we have this this pandemic, it's it's very bad. You can, people can get very sick if they get it, but it will be over by the end of the year. So you just you know you just have to follow what the government says. You just have to follow the rules that are being set out because there's this team of of, of experts who are sort of designing the strategies and, uh, and to get us out of these as safely as possible within, within months. Um, and people are probably more willing to, to, to follow the rules and, 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 and to be part of this strategy than if they are told this is a big problem, it's going to last three or four years and we are just we don't even know how to develop a proper strategy for it to develop to you know to last all this time maybe there's going to be a vaccine that will save us and yeah i i i i don't see why telling people i should quite the opposite i think telling you know telling people that this lasts uh, 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 sort of manageable time frame, uh, something they can they can cope to to make the sacrifice for six months. They maybe people may be willing to take us make a sacrifice for six months that may not yeah. be willing to take for four years. So I think it's good to know that uh, if it's true that the, the that's it's plausible that it may last only only uh, uh, six months, six more months. So, yeah, I think we should tell people. You don't people don't. Ex understand complicated mathematics they don't need to understand you know the whole herd immunity as far as the coefficient of variability and all those sorts of things but you can if you give people a roadmap and you give them a reasonable time frame and say we're, we expect that it to be done it's the open-ended nature of things that makes it really difficult to plan um you know people who are going to have get married and now do they have to wait one year two years to have a wedding or things like that or to have children uh, there are a lot of things that you put on hold and you can't put them on hold indefinitely and so it causes a lot of resentment it and at least in our country, we had initially, the, we had officials saying, don't wear masks, even though they knew that people should wear masks probably, but we didn't have enough. And so instead of saying there aren't enough masks, make sure people in the hospitals have masks, they said, don't wear masks. And so it, then when they asked people to wear masks later, people were like, well, we, you know, <laughs> you can't send mixed messages like this. And I think the WHO was also, uh, was also responsible for that sort of behavior. How do we, oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, or, or or if you are just another example of that, if you are an adolescent and and someone tells you you are going to be like this for four years, like you know, they, they, I had this conversation with one of my nephews and yeah. said, well, in four years I won't be an adolescent anymore, so I will have lost completely my adolescence. And you know, if you tell them it's only six months, they say, okay, maybe this summer is going to be a bit funny, but then you know, then next summer will be I'll yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make up yeah. for it. Although you worry about adolescents doing you know work making up for things in six months. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you hate to take away someone's youth, especially when, um, and so I guess you get the behaviors you'd expect, right? That if you say it's gonna, we're going to take away forever, like, well, I guess I might as well not bother doing anything. I, I might as well just go and do what I want at this point. Uh, so I guess the, the, the proof in the pudding is always, is it true, right? So how do we know when this, that, that your model is more accurate than the models that came out earlier that were saying, you know, global devastation, you know, morgues will get filled up, we'll have to, you know, dig mass graves and things like that. And how do we know that, that your model is correct, that the herd immunity is really 10, 20 percent, that we're going to have, that we can, that other scientists will feel comfortable saying, well, maybe we need to relook at our initial sort of, you know, devast, you know, really terrible models. Yeah, I think the, the our model is more compatible with the data at this point. I think we can say that. When I couldn't say that uh, uh, in May, in early May, when we first started discussing and presenting our results, and we, you know, people were doubtful that the, the 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 effect would be so large as we were saying, and I didn't insist much at the time. We, we had a first preprint at that time. Our first preprint was at, uh, 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 posted at the end of April. And, and you know, my arguments then were, well, but we have this, this is the magnitude of variation that we see for malaria, for tuberculosis. So it seems reasonable, it is reasonable to assume the same magnitude of variation for COVID. And if we assume that variation for COVID, then we get these herd immunity thresholds 10 to 20%. And it was challenging because people say, "Well, but how about how about if COVID is totally different right. and uh, and variation is less? Variation is much less. Then you won't get that uh, large effect that you are uh, um, suggesting." And uh, okay, and I, and I just continue. We just continue doing our work, and and then it was very it was very striking that as more data became available, then support for our initial estimates was becoming stronger and stronger. And especially when the 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 social when lockdowns were being lifted, social distancing measures were being relaxed, and the homogeneous models just want, wanted to have cases increasing. So, according to a homogeneous model, the, as soon as you lift the social distance, the, 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 as soon as you relax social distances, the cases start going up again very soon. And according to our model, no, they kept going down. And, 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 and it was this phase of the epidemic that enabled us to estimate, uh, I think with a high level of confidence, the coefficients of variation that we now, uh, yeah, that we now have in our models, uh, that by the way, are similar to those we had estimated for tuberculosis and malaria uh, over the last few years. So, so it's similar. And, and, and with those coefficients of variation, we really do get herd immunity thresholds between 10 and 20%. Yeah. It could be a bit more or a bit less. If you look uh, at smaller regions, if you, if you do subnational studies, then you can, get, um, you, you can get regional herd immunity thresholds that may be much higher or much lower if you are in a big city or if you are in a small village, of course. Sure. So, so the, to, be, to be clear then, this is, your model is one that works not just with COVID, because of course we don't know for sure, but if you look at, we place it for other infectious diseases, you see the same, the same pattern and the same thresholds work for other diseases. Are, are other epidemiologists, do they, well, you're not an epidemiologist, so I should say, so do epidemiologists, is that sort of almost too new a concept for them to, to agree with? Or, um, you know, how, how was, I guess, how was your work received a couple of years ago before this, this new pandemic? Yeah, so I think epidemiologists are 
very well aware that uh, heterogeneity is very important. It makes models behave different. So it, you know, there's a high recognition for the importance of heterogeneity in models. The difficulty is how to measure it. And because I think the, the, usually what people think, and I see when people ask me questions about how I measure this heterogeneity, and I say, I don't measure it. We just <laughs> put it in the model as a parameter, and then we fit this model to the data, and the best fit tells us what is the coefficient of variation. Uh, so, so we don't know what the specific factors are. We don't try to measure specific factors. Because uh, uh, I, I think the approach has been, if we, if we, if we build a model, if we want to build a model with heterogeneity and susceptibility, we have to enumerate which factors we think that are most important for that, for that variation in susceptibility, let's say genetics or let's say innate immunity, let's say exposure to other coronavirus. And the mindset is that you'd have to go and measure that. You'd have to measure the importance of genetics in, in individual, in how, how much genetics contributes to this individual variation, how much uh, exposure to other coronavirus accounts for this individual variation, how much innate immunity and so on, uh, nutrition or whatever other factors. And that's almost prohibitively difficult to do. And, and, and you couldn't do that in a short time frame in, in an emergency like for this pandemic. And and, our, and and that's it's there that our approach difference differs. Is that we we are not going to try to estimate all all these factors and then try to compose a distribution that takes all those factors into account. We are just going to admit that we couldn't possibly do that in a in a useful time frame. So we just put it this, this abstractly as a parameter in our model, and we are going to fit the model with that parameter in it to the epidemics, and we are going to estimate that parameter. And then we have a parameterized model that we can use, we can use to make projections, and we think it makes more accurate projections because it actually did a better fit to the data that, uh, of the epidemics so far. Right, and, and in medicine we see this all the time in the sense that uh, you know, we have a new pharmacologic agent that's introduced for say treating cancer we don't um, we don't know exactly why it works why a chemotherapeutic agent works in one person it doesn't another we just know that say in 60% of the people you get an extra year of survival or something like that certainly later on you can try and find genetic reasons or uh, some sort of individual variation that causes a drug to be more effective or less effective in an individual and then you can tailor the medications and your treatment but initially it you're you just know sort of the averages, right? And so you don't know. Mm. And so when you go to a patient, you can't tell them this will work 100%, this will work zero. You can just give them an, a number, an average of how often it works without knowing individually how it's going to work. But you could say in a population, it's going to work this this often from a previous experience. But again, yeah. we haven't figured out these specific factors or parameters yeah, that cause that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy because in, in, the, the way the way we we, we build all our models with this heterogeneity that may have the right level, we hope the right level of heterogeneity, but we don't know what causes it exactly. We, you, we, we can, it serves the purpose of making the model more accurate and making, I, I hope, more reliable predictions. But it doesn't help you target interventions if you, if, if you, if you want it to, because you don't know who are those individuals who are more susceptible. Actually, we were talking before, and it's very relevant, we were talking before about vaccines. If you have a vaccine, and you, you may want to target it to those individuals who are more likely to get the infection. But if you don't know who they are, yeah. you can't do that yet. So, um, so we are not completely there yet. We are, you know, when, when the need for that comes, we are not ready for that yet. That's why I think it would be really uh, important to have others, other, other researchers, other groups who work with the different approaches from others, complementary approaches to ours, we join uh, this, this effort and, um, yeah, and uh, uh, address the next steps. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been a very hopeful discussion because I think, you know, like you said, we've had this open-ended discussion or concern that this is going to last years and years. And I think an important point about to mention this too is that even though you may not have, we, even once you hit herd immunity, it just means that the virus is not growing in scale. It does not mean it goes away forever. And so there'll still be cases, just like there's not a, a, a pandemic of malaria, but there's still malaria, right? I mean, still malaria exists and people can get it. And obviously, once there are certain diseases that they're no longer epidemics and 
but they can be so present in the community until you get adequate vaccination and protect enough individuals. You can theoretically get rid of it, like smallpox would be a good example, or almost tuberculosis. And, um, you know, there are a couple of diseases we've almost gotten rid of uh, through vaccinations, but it doesn't mean that, um, but we've at least gotten beyond the pan- the part where we're having epidemics and where it causes massive disruptions in our healthcare systems and, you know, our lives. And so it's probably important to point that out too, that even if you hit the threshold, it does not mean that coronavirus 19 just disappears, right? It's still around. Yeah. Yeah. I think the expectation is that the virus will continue as a, as a seasonal virus, like many others, like all these seasonal virus that cause respiratory uh, diseases in, in the winters. And, um, yeah, and also the thresh uh, and, and the reason why they are seasonal viruses is that you may, you know, one winter you may cross the threshold or, or at some point you may be above threshold, but then you, 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 you lose, you know, you, you lose that status uh, over time because may, maybe more babies were born without that immunity and or, or maybe because immunity wanes and it, it's not long lived or it's not life it's not lifelong so eventually you will lose if, if you we may in this uh, so this this pandemic may take us above the herd immunity threshold but eventually we'll be below again and well, there will be another another uh, epidemic but typically typically much smaller you won't be this huge disruption that we have um, right and and I've talked to a number of people too who say it. The assumption is at some point this coronavirus becomes, as you were sort of mentioning, an endemic. So it means it's always with us. It's around, uh, and and used with the usual courses of viruses when they become endemic, is that eventually become fairly benign. Uh, when you have we have four other coronaviruses, it's entirely possible that at one point those strains were more virulent or more deadly, and now they just aren't anymore because they're more likely to survive and reproduce since they, um, if they're not, if they don't kill off their hosts like, like this one is. And so, I mean, that would be probably what will happen at some point. But those viruses also, adenoviruses, rhinovirus, coronavirus, which are endemic and are somewhat seasonal, but not always, but they can still kill you if you're old and weak and you have, and they can cause other, you can get other secondary infections. And so you can get a viral pneumonia. We just don't usually check to see what kind of virus most people get when they're elderly. And then they may, they may succumb to it. And that's just sort of what happens. It's, you know, unfortunately life is a fatal disease and so we all succumb to it at some point uh obviously don't want it uh, to cut people's lives short or to have extra suffering so that's why we try and do everything we can to try uh eliminate this or minimize it uh any parting thoughts or like what sort of where your research is going to go for the next six months are you going to are you going to try and reach out and to get more people to collaborate with you and to try and and look at this model and see that it fits better than their models or i mean how do you sort of move forward at this point? Yeah, well, we would like to apply it to other to other parts of the world. In, you know, in, um, we are now working with colleagues in Brazil. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the dynamics in the, in, in the US, in different states, different dynamics in different states is also very interesting. I think it would be very interesting to, to try to address it with this model and and in africa it just uh, i'm very intrigued about uh, you know i hear that uh, that in 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 parts of africa the the, the prevalence is reaching like 20 percent uh, without major lockdown because there's no resources for right. that and then it just stops growing and it comes down so i i uh, yeah i'd like to to to, to look at the, you know very different apply the model to very different parts of the world and also uh i don't know if other if if you know if, if people are interested to 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 collaborate with us with complementary approaches try to compare these distributions these coefficients of variation that we are estimating trying to see how that compares with when risk factors are measured directly in, in principle our coefficient of variation should always be larger than the coefficient of variation for a single factor measured by other studies but how do those other factors combined, is it possible to uh, identify a small number, a reasonably small number of factors and, and, and how they interact uh, with each other to reconstruct our distributions, but in a more bottom-up 
uh, way rather than our the way that our, our approach that is uh, more top down perhaps we just want to you know, describe the you know we want to describe the distribution not constructed uh, from basic principles but it would be nice to see how the two things match eventually you know, eventually right. when we have it all it should match they should right. make the same distribution yeah well i mean and a model is only as good as its assumptions and how good the assumptions are right i mean so that's that's where you're always trying to refine your your coefficients and all those all the variables in there because you know if you're something's way off it can give you totally different results and as you've seen from many of the models that people have introduced whether it's climate change or um, with the pandemic you see different different conclusions to how it works plays out at the end yeah another thing I would like to do uh, it would be to look at other pandemics with this model to look at the uh, historical influenza pandemic of 1918 because that's you know we are constantly being confronted with that right. with that and so well what do their models say about that pandemic well, I, well we haven't looked at it this way so we just it's the first time that this kind of model is being used for on on, on a pandemic so it would be nice to look at the previous ones and see whether the conclusions are similar to uh, and and whether the conclusions change what is known what is currently known about uh, the uh, influence of pandemic. Right. And the, tr the tricky thing, of course, with that is historical data is really spotty. It's hard to know what, as far as, you know, the record keeping is not great. It's, there's not, there weren't any tests for it specifically. So it, it, it pandemics, fortunately, they don't happen all that often. So I guess if it, if it did, you'd be a lot easier to study this sort of thing, right? It's, um, so anyway, uh, how do people find it? Uh, obviously your paper will be linked at the show notes page at paradox.com slash year 95. What are ways for people to, to find out, follow more of what you're doing and to keep track of your work? Uh, I, I have a, a web a website in, in, uh, at the University of Strathclyde, but it's still, it doesn't have much in it yet because I have just moved. <laughs> so, um, so I'm afraid, yeah, well, I, I, I can send you the link to my website and it, uh, you know, eventually when I have time, I will... I will populate it with <laughs> with other projects. Do you tweet? Are you out on Twitter or in social media? Uh, yes, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, I'm a bit new to Twitter, so sometimes it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> <laughs> and I get sort of this wave of, of questions and debate and so on. I say, what? what, what? But but I, I think I'm getting used yeah. to it. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. It's a dangerous stressful to swim around. What is your handle for Twitter? Uh, so it's uh, MGM Gomez one. Okay. Well, Dr. Gabriel Gomez from the University of Strathclyde, thank you so much for being on the Paradox. I really appreciate the discussion. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>